0: If you have your Bible today, you can open to Judges chapter 14. We'll actually start our day's scripture reading in 13, 24 and 25. It says, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. And he grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in uh, Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you today for the many insights that you give us and you deliver to us uh, in your word. And we pray today, God, that, uh, that you would help us to understand the word, help us to think about how to apply it, help us to be encouraged and inspired and challenged by this story. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. Last week, we learned that God had chosen Samson from birth to deliver the people of their sin, the sin of idolatry. And it is a sin for which they have become, as we learned last week, comfortable. Idolatry is now respectable. It's fashionable. And Samson is the last judge in this book. Samson, of all the judges that we've covered, he's the last one. Now there'll be a couple more stories at the end. They're pretty grisly. You know, put on your big boy pants. Uh, because they're they're pretty shocking. But today we're going to be looking at the last story about an Israeli judge, a Jewish judge. And we pick up in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, "Uh, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And his father and his mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Just so you know, Temna, uh is about 40, a 45-minute drive from Ashkelon. Ashkelon is on the coast, so that would be like Los Angeles right? So if you think of that, and then the Philistines had a series of cities that they put on the coast there, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Gaza. Those cities are still there today. And Timnah is inland. So you can walk it in about seven to nine hours, depending on uh, how leisurely you want to take the walk. And so uh, this land was a tribal allotment to Dan. Now, when I was in Israel, Dan, that uh, land was way up north. It had been relocated way up in northern Israel. However, at this time, it's down in the south near on the border of Judah, right? So that's kind of where they are. They're about an hour and a half south of where I was in the Jezreel Valley when I was there a couple of weeks ago. And just so you know, this land, if you saw it, the reason why everyone is Fighting over this land, you think, well, Israel's just a desert. Who wants this land? This is the spot, this is the area that's really awesome. This is the area where you can, that's very fertile. You can grow lots of crops, lots of olive crops. Uh, You can grow lots of things there wheat, barley, uh, the staples of their diet. And so everybody is fighting over this territory here in the middle. And we learned that. He wants a Philistine wife, and his parents beg him, don't do that. Like, don't do that. Isn't there an acceptable woman? How bad do your choices have to be if, like, marrying your cousin is a better option? (laughs) Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives? A very odd statement. The Philistines were a seafaring coastal people. So when you read about the Philistines in the the Old Testament, they're kind of like the Klingons in Star Trek. Right? They, are, they are Israel's nemesis, but understand the Philistines are not a Semitic group of people. What do we mean by this? They're not descendants of Sem or Shem, one of the sons of Noah through whom Abraham's line comes. So Abraham had all these kids, and uh, all these kids had kids, and they had tribes, so you've got the tribes of Israel, you've got the Arabs. Well, the Philistines are not part of a- Abraham's family they are Indo-European. The word Philistia or Philistine means the seafarers. So think of these guys like the Vikings, right? Like they have shown up and they're big, they're really big, and they're there to take this land and they have infested Israel's land now. And it says, but Samson said to his father, no, get her for me. That's super mature, right? She's the right one for me. Now, this phrase, she's the right one for me, in Hebrew, it literally says, she is right in my eyes. And there are only three times in this book that that phrase is used. It's used of the nation. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they didn't obey the Lord. And here, where Samson said, no, she's the one who's right in my eyes, Now, it also says his parents didn't know that the Lord was using this. The Lord was using this as an opportunity to confront the Philistines. And so uh, they protest, marry your sister or marry a cousin. Cousin, Verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And they approached the vineyards of Timnah and suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart as with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. So he's already decided to marry her. Now he decides, probably a good idea to have a conversation. <laughs> so probably good idea, a good idea to go down there and actually meet the girl. And so uh, understand uh, that Samson is... Uh, Supernaturally empowered to tear this lion apart. Now, these Asiatic lions were greatly feared in this region. People were terrified of them and they were all over the place. And so, if you were traveling from one town to another and you had to walk a long distance again, traveling to another town or another region would be like seven miles or, or a seven hour walk. And so, you would be terrified that someone would jump out and try to, you know, uh, rob you. Or one of these lions. And he just, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he tears that lion apart from end to end as he would have torn a young goat. Now, maybe that's just like a pastime in Israel, <laughs> tearing young goats at the party, party trick. Um, and so it says in verse eight, sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. And he scooped it out with his hands and he ate it as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave some to them and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So the fact that he scooped it out with his hands, this is the first incident where he becomes unclean. Because remember what Pat told us last week, he has three conditions to his calling, three conditions to his anointing. Remember what they are. He's not supposed to touch a dead body. Well, he's touching one here. He's not supposed to cut his hair, and he's not supposed to eat even a single grape. He cannot have anything from the vine, right? So here's the first incident in which Samson, uh, he, he doesn't make good, or he defies the conditions of his calling, Now, the fact that he doesn't tell his parents this too means he's also ritually defiled them. They are now ritually unsanctified. And the fact that he's hidden this from them also tells us that he's careless. And the scribe who wrote this story means to tell his fellow Jews, don't be careless like Samson. Don't be careless like Samson. Because this is the first step out of compliance with God and ritual purity. Verse 10, it says, now his father went down to see the woman. And there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When, he, when the people saw him, they chose 30 men, men to be his companions or his bridesgrooms, his groomsmen. Uh, and so he goes down finally to see the woman, his dad does. And the fact that he's never had a conversation with the woman until now speaks volumes about his character. Not, we are not here dealing with a spiritual man. We're dealing with a gifted man, but a person whose heart is not after the Lord. And it says that he held a feast. This phrase in Hebrew, held a feast, means he held a drinking party. That's literally what it says. He held a drinking party. And a drinking party is exactly what you think it is. It's it's a, a means to get drunk and revel and celebrate. And so the strong implication here is that Samson partook of the strong drink available at the feast... And this would be the second way in which he defies the conditions of his calling. Nothing from the grapevine, not even an alcoholic, non-alcoholic juice was to pass his lips, not even one grape. And so here he is, the master of ceremonies at a drunken kegger. Verse 12, it says, "'Let me tell you a riddle,' Samson said to them. "'If you could give me the answer within seven days of the feast, "'I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty sets of clothes.'" Okay, so this is just a sign of wealth. Now, he doesn't have anything because uh, obviously he can't hunt and he can't fish. So he has to live off the land. He has to be a farmer. His, 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 uh, his vocation has to be agrarian. And so he really doesn't have all of this to give them, but he tells them, listen, if you can guess this riddle, if you can guess what it's about and solve it, then I'll give you, I'll give all of you this huge, massive wardrobe which signifies wealth, but at the end of the seven days, if you cannot solve the riddle, you have to give me 30 garments. You have to give me all of these resources, and here's the riddle. Tell us the riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Oh, he's clever. For three days, they could not give an answer, and then they threatened his fiance. They tell this young Philistine girl, who's probably absolutely terrified, if you don't pressure him, if you don't find out the secret, that we're going to kill you, and we're going to kill your dad, and we're going to kill your whole family. And so she has this tremendous <laughs> pressure to, to get the secret out of him. And finally, as is typical of his character, he finally tells her the secret. They reveal that they know it, and now he's got to cough it up. Now he's got to give them what he promised them in the wager, and he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not know the answer. Young men, can I give you some advice? You know where I'm going with this. Please, take it from a man who's made mistakes. Never refer to your wife this way, ever, ever. This is a bad idea. And so these unsolvable riddles were all the rage in the ancient world. People would constantly challenge one another or wager with one another with these unsolvable riddles. And people who could, who could get the riddle uh, showed that they had the mark of the gods on them. And then in verse 19, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully, and he went down to Ashkelon. Now remember, this is a coastal city, and it's still there today. It's one of their main Philistine coastal cities, right? And so then he goes down to Ashkelon about a nine-hour walk. He struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife had been given to one of his groomsmen. Bummer. Notice that the Spirit of the Lord still does come upon him. What does that tell you? That God is faithful to perform his will. God is faithful to to carry out his purposes despite the lack of character of this young man. He's still called. He's still gifted, at least for now. And so the Spirit of the Lord does come upon him. And then in chapter 15, we see Samson really takes his vengeance out on them. During the wheat harvest, Samson visits his wife, but her father refuses to let him see her and offers her, offers her uh, him uh, the woman's younger, prettier sister. But angered, Samson decides to harm the Philistines. He decides to destroy them. He captures 300 jackals. Now, in your text, it says foxes, but foxes are solitary animals. And that Hebrew word can also be translated jackals. And so uh, he caught them in groups, caught about 300 of them. And then he does something so nefarious, man. He does something so bad because not even the people who were trying to take over your land would burn your land. Because if they took over your village, they had to live in that village and grow crops in your village so no one would ever burn your land. And here you have all these olive groves. And here you have all these beautiful vineyards. And you have all this barley and wheat out there. And what does he do? He ties torches between the tails of the jackals and sends 300 of them running into their their farmland. And not only does he destroy them, he destroys the means by which... Uh, Jews who lived in that land could eat. So understand, he is a particularly mischievous little prankster. And the Philistines camp near Lehi and Judah, and they they want an accounting for this. They want to kill him now. They burn his wife and his his fiancée and his family to death. They end up dying anyway. And then Samson vows revenge and attacks the Philistines, killing many of them. Verse 9, chapter 15. The Philistines camp near Lehi and Judah. Now, this is where the story gets interesting because the Judahites who are right there, right there in that territory where he lived, they should have come to his aides. They are Jewish brothers. And 3,000 men come to his doorstep and say, hey, listen, you cause problems with us. We are very comfortable with the Philistines ruling us. And so you need to go. He says, fine, just tie me up. Tie me up with flax cords. So they do. They tie him up with these flax cords and take him to the Philistines. And when the Philistines see him coming from a distance, they run toward him. And then in supernatural strength, man, just like Thor, he just breaks out of these bonds and he picks up a donkey jawbone. And what does he do? He kills a thousand of them with a donkey jawbone. Verse 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. And then Samson sang, With a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. And when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramat Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cries out to the Lord. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And then God opened up the hollow place at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called Ein Hekor, and it is still there in Lehi today. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And so here, when he grabs this jawbone, this is now the third incident This is now the third encounter where he makes himself unclean. He has touched another dead thing. He has touched another dead thing, but yet the Lord allows him to slay a thousand Philistines. And then he cries out to the Lord. Now, this is the first time, notice in the text, that he does anything spiritual at all. This is his first prayer. And what is the content of his first prayer? Does it begin with thanksgiving and praise to the God of heaven who so richly supplied him with all things? No. Does it extol the virtues of God in his greatness and his goodness and his mercy and his unfailing love? Nope. It's just a desperate Hail Mary pass, hoping that God will provide for him once again. And then when God does provide for him, does he say thank you? Does he say, oh, Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for what you have so richly supplied. He does not. We are not here dealing with a spiritual man. We are not here dealing with a man like David who composes songs to extol the virtues of God. He composes these nonsense, these silly rhymes to celebrate his own strength and his victory. And so today we draw some lessons from Samuel. Here they are, or Samson. Samson was a chosen, but he was a foolish man. God is faithful even when our heroes falter. The author here means to paint a picture for us. It's a morality play about how to avoid personal ruin by growing up and becoming a mature believer who lives for God's glory and the good of others. And it is ironic that the wise, cracking wordsmith in Judges 14 is actually characterized here in the story as a fool, And this conclusion is evident when Samson's actions are compared to the Proverbs. So I'm just going to take a few minutes and compare his character with the Proverbs. The first thing we observe about a fool is this. A fool brings sorrow and grief to their loved ones. Proverbs 10.1 and 17.25 and 19.13 say this. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. A wise son is teachable but a mocker will not hear the words of his father's rebuke. A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the mother who bore him. And we see this so clearly in Samson's interactions with Manoah. Parents had the prerogative to choose your mate back then. They arranged marriages. And here we have Samson going against his culture to say, no, I want this woman. You go get her for me. And so his selfishness like a child is just on display. He demands from his parents, instead of honoring them and respecting them, he disrespects them. He disobeys Moses' law to honor his father and mother, and he instead disgraces them. Fools bring grief and anguish to the hearts of their parents. We also observe that a fool displays disregard for the spiritual health of others. Proverbs ten seventeen says, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life. But whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Samson has no regard for the fact that he's made his family unclean by giving them honey from a dead animal. The foolish person shows little regard or little apprehension or little restraint when it comes to leading others astray. They have no regard for the spiritual health or the well-being of those closest to them and how their hardness of heart is affecting the people around them. That's foolish. Again, we see that a fool wastes precious time on childish pranks. Proverbs ten twenty three says, a fool takes pleasure in juvenile antics. A fool takes pleasure in juvenile, wicked juvenile schemes. And right up to the moment, the spirit of the Lord leaves him in chapter 16, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but right up until the moment when the Lord, the spirit of the Lord leaves him, he is still playing games still playing games, he is still tempting fate with his antics. And at some point, the adolescent has to become an adult, not obsessively tricking people with these infantile pranks but viewing the world with sober eyes and respecting and honoring other people. You know, growing up in my dad's home, we were absolutely forbidden to, to play pranks on each other. Practical jokes, it was forbidden in my house. And my dad had zero, and I mean zero toler- tolerance practical jokesters. I learned that the hard way once. I grew up, and after I went off to college, I was really surprised in my dorm room that we had so many guys constantly playing practical jokes on each other in the dorm, and it really bothered me. Like, I was tense all the time, and I felt like I was just going to blow up at someone and one day it came to a head, I, I was in the shower, and uh, Northwest College, the way their showers were is, they were individual showers with a glass door, so you had a little privacy there. And the guy in the stall right next to me, his friends come in, I see his friends come in with a Home Depot-sized bucket of cold water. And they pour it over on him, and they run out of the bathroom howling with Laughter. And the guy wasn't too happy, but he laughed also. And, I got, and it triggered me. I got so angry. I got dressed, and I very calmly walked down the hallway. I knocked on the guy's door, and I said, Hey, I just want to tell you, don't ever do that to me. And he kind of chuckled. And then he saw that I was serious as a coronary. <laughs> now, I will admit to you, I could have handled that better. Like, I could have handled that in a more spiritually mature and gracious way, but I wanted him to know, in no uncertain terms, don't ever pull a prank on me. And since then, I've been able to reflect on why it bothers me so much. I didn't let my kids do it growing up, and here's why. I I figured out, my dad was actually teaching me a principle without ever saying it. He was saying, you need to be a man, and this is what men do. Men don't pull pranks on each other. Because when you do that and you laugh at someone else's expense, what happens is, is you dishonor that person. You rob them of their honor. You rob them of their dignity. And this is what characterizes Samson's exploits. He's a prankster. His juvenile antics finally, in the end, will catch up with him and the spirit of the sovereign Lord will leave him. We also observe that fools become isolated. Isolated. Notice that Samson doesn't have any allies in the story. Proverbs 15, says, Plans fail for lack of wise counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise will actually listen to the advice of others. Samson is a man without an ally. Samson's isolation prevents him from hearing the truth about himself. When men become isolated, listen, they become self-serving. When men become isolated, they become self-serving. They don't serve the good, the common good. And notice that he makes no effort to appeal to the Judahites. They should be helping him. 3,000 men from Judah, they should be routing these Philistines and driving them out of the land as God had commanded them, but they're not doing it. A true ally will support you, but also challenge you. A true ally will encourage you. But they'll also tell you the truth about yourself. And Samson is a man without a confederate. He is a man without a counselor. He's a man without a friend. He's going it alone, and eventually it's going to rob him of the opportunity to serve the Lord. And that happens a lot in ministry today, doesn't it? We see this happening to Christian celebrity pastors who become isolated and then they just veer off the path because there was no one in their life to ever tell them, hey, listen, you're veering off the path. You're veering off the way. Next, we see that fools become skirt chasers. Fools become skirt chasers. His fondness for foreign women epitomizes his foolishness. I'm gonna read from you from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 12 through 19. It says, wisdom will save you from the ways of the wicked men, from men whose words are perverse. Who have left the straight paths to walk in dark paths. Who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Whose paths are crooked and are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulteress. From her perversion. From this perverted woman. With her seductive words. Who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death. And her path to the spirits where the dead dwell. And none who go to her return again to the path of life. And what is the wise sage of the Proverbs saying? A fool is driven by his lustful desires because it leads ultimately to ruin and death. On occasion, you will see this happen to people in ministry too. People leave their spouses to seek a better sex life. I have a friend right now in his 60s who left his wife uh, for a woman 15 years younger than him. He left the church, he left his ministry, he left everything just so he could have another role in the hay with a younger woman. And the Bible tells us that's foolishness. And the tragedy of it is you see a person like that, they emerge on Facebook again, and what are they asking you for? For forgiveness for their failing, but there's no repentance. There's no turning away from it. There's no turning away from that sin. And so you'll hear them say things like, well, God just loves me unconditionally. And I don't care how much these people extol the so-called reckless love of God. Listen, that's a false theology. God's love is not reckless. God's love is perfect. And God's love is purposeful. And the fact is that they have become isolated, sinful, lustful, self-centered people who have walked out of relationship with God, and they don't even realize they have. And that is what characterizes Samson's life. He's walked out of relationship with God. He continues to offend God, and now he doesn't even know. Chapter 16, we'll find out. He doesn't even know the Spirit of the Lord has left him. He doesn't know. And it's so sad, and let me tell you. You may get away right now, young men, listen to me, with being a young buck, a playboy, sowing your wild oats and wreaking havoc for a little while. For a season in your life, you may find the notion of commitment and settling down and becoming a one-woman man unimaginable. Who would want that? But someday you're going to be a man in your 40s and your 50s. And you know what you're going to be? You're not going to be the hot playboy anymore. I guarantee you that. You're gonna be the sad old guy at the frat party. You're gonna be a grown, grown man, an older man with a boy's lust. And there is nothing sadder than that. And instead, what the scriptures challenge us to do is to not go it alone, not be isolated, but then not just become isolated also in our lust and in our desire. Listen, at some point, you 20-something-year-old men, listen to me, at some point, you're going to be a 50-year-old man, and a cancer diagnosis might come into your life. Who are you going to share that with? Who are you going to share the victories and the joys of life with, and who are you going to share the challenges of life with? The suffering that's eventually coming to your doorstep. What is so sad about Samson is right into his 40s, right to the end of his life, he's alone, and he's chosen prostitutes over a woman from Israel, to settle down and have a family. And next we see that fools get even at all costs. I'll go to the New Testament now. Romans twelve nineteen. Do not forsake revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now notice, constantly it says that Samson wanted to take revenge on his own enemies. Now does God use this? Yes, he does. right? But this guy is all about payback. And what the New Testament would tell us, what Paul would tell us is, our lives cannot be about payback. This is not what the Christian life is about. It is the Lord's to avenge. We may seek justice, but we uh, we may not seek retribution. And so now to help him bring glory to the God of Israel... Or peace to God's holy land. God's anointing does continue to come on him, but notice he never gives the credit to the Lord. He never acknowledges the Lord. The wise will offer forgiveness and leave payback up to God. Next, we find that Samson is a chosen fool. He is chosen by God, he's anointed by the Spirit. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Isn't it good to know that even in light of his failures, many failures, his many character flaws, God is still working the story of Israel out. And God is still working toward the good of his plan of redemption. God is still sovereign. And so, finally here, what is the antidote to a fool's life? It's the path of wisdom in Christ. Over time the mature man or woman of God learns that sometimes their first impressions are wrong. Sometimes their deepest instincts aren't dependable. Their innermost longings or what they desire in the moment is just wrong-headed. It is the mark of the mature to wait, to delay gratification, to pray through a decision to seek counsel from trusted advisors and to tread cautiously into big life-altering decisions. By contrast, the immature rush foolishly in, seeking self-indulgence above all else, having little or no concern for the consequences of their impulsivity. They send no prayers heavenward for guidance or the Spirit's leading, no gratitude for the things given and richly supplied by God and unable to tolerate hearing the truth about themselves. And I'm here to say, this is it. Listen, if you require every longing and desire of your flesh to be met instantly, to be coddled and never told the truth about yourself, to be praised for your brilliance and effortless competence, congratulations, you're a toddler. (laughs) Because that's what toddlers are, right? You give them an A for effort. And Samson's story, no doubt, is a morality play. It shows us the futility of extending our adolescence into adulthood. It paints a graphic and tragic picture of people who just never really actually grow up in the Lord. But this is not the Lord's will for us. By contrast, God has called us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at how Samson's anointing, the anointing, the spirit enablement that God had for him on him, is actually contrasted to the Christian life and what God says for us that he has enabled us and empowered us to do. Will you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful congregation, this amazing church family, Christ Community Church, people who love your word and love your presence and love your truth. And God, today, we just want to commit ourselves to becoming people of maturity in Christ, people who grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I commit myself to that. And teach us your ways. Teach us the paths of your wisdom. Teach us the paths away from foolish living. Help us to see that your love is not silly or pathetic or reckless. Your love is purposeful and perfect and perfecting. And help us to live in the grace and the knowledge of that love. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen.